Amen. Um, man, I really am excited about um, this uh, nation's course because, you know, um, in a year where not many people traveled to the nations, um, sometimes we kind of lose sight of, wait a second, like, does God just care about us and our town, our country, or does he care about everybody? And so it just helps us again to kind of pull back and see the larger picture of God's story um, for the peoples of the earth. So really encourage you to sign up for that. Again, it's three Mondays. We'd love for you to be part of that. It'll end before um, spring break or the one-day spring break that college students have. But I think if you're K-12, through you get a real spring break. So there you go. Um, well, good morning. My name's Tyler Hardy. If I haven't met you yet, um, I hope to meet you today uh, after the service. But uh, uh, we are uh, in week two of a series on the church, and we really talked about uh, what do we need to do to kind of kick off this year, and the reality is that we kind of took a step back and, and reflecting upon what's gone on the last year, year and a half, we realized, hey, I think that people in general need to have a clear understanding of the church. Like, who is the church? What is the church? What does the church do? Because there may be confusion with that when it comes to the church. And I think in a year where um, for the first time in my lifetime, and I think in almost anyone's, um, that churches nationwide like didn't gather together consistently weekly for a period of time. That was so abnormal. Like that's never happened that I'm aware of. Not even during wartime that has never happened. And so very unique. And so people taking a step back from the church then maybe leads to some confusion, disillusionment, disconnectedness. So we said, you know what? We need to be clear again about um, what is the church, what does the church do, and, um, and where are we going as a church at Antioch in regards to the scriptures and what does it teach us, all right? So this is hopefully going to be an eight-week series. We're in week two here. If you missed the first one, go back to last week, listen to it. But to where it's going to give you um, a, a clear biblical undergirding for what the church is and theologically what it's all about and how does the Bible, how does the Word of God describe the church, and then also give you clarity and context for how do you participate in the church, right? And so I just want to say on the front end, when it comes to the church, it, uh, it is a participatory um, uh, deal. Like it is not an attendance thing, so it's not, it's not just buying a ticket to go see a movie and be entertained, Right, like the church is actually something that involves you. So the church not moving and working and rubbing shoulders together isn't the church, right? And so last week we actually talked about the church being the body of Christ and how how the body has multiple parts and functions, right? And I think I shared a story of a friend who actually had cut off part of her finger and um, and was not able to get reattached in time. Therefore, she has a short finger. And um, I think we all are aware that when you lose a finger, um, it's gone unless it gets reattached quickly, right? And so in the body of Christ, Paul uses this amazing imagery of the body and how it's reflected the body of Christ. And when you're detached from the body, you just, you can't make it. And more so, when we talk about the body as a whole, um, when you're detached from the head, you can't live. I'm not aware of any creature on planet Earth that can live without a head. Are you? Uh, there might be. Uh, one of those aliens out there, some of you guys, I don't know. But on, on planet Earth, so far as science has discovered, 
All right? And when all, you know, the two by two that came on Noah's Ark, they all had heads. Okay? Even the teeny tiny little bugs, they all got a head. You take the head out, the body's dead. Right? Which means, just a little history, 2,000 years ago, um, uh, this weasel of a um, entity named the devil um, uh, tried to cut off the head. He tried to take Jesus down. Right? Temptation in the desert through his entire ministry, his entire life, and yet Jesus prevailed sinless, holy, perfect, righteous, all the way up even to the point of death, which he willingly chose to do. Remember, Jesus went to the cross willingly. He was not overrun by the Roman soldiers or by this Jewish mob or by the Pharisees getting the crowd to chant crucify him. That was all part of the plan. It's a crazy plan, but a crazy plan that was steeped in love so that Jesus would fulfill the prophecy of becoming the one true Messiah, the one true ultimate sacrifice, so that anyone, not just particular type of people, but anyone who would come underneath the lordship of Jesus and be washed in the blood of Christ through his crucifixion, who would come to him and surrender the life, say, Jesus, you're, you have been the perfect sacrifice for my sins, that anybody on planet earth forever could come to him and be forgiven of their sins. Which, as a reminder, the only thing that separates you from heavenly God, holy, almighty God, is sin. Sin is the separation. It's not good works. It's not being nice. It's not your birth. It's not the family you came from. It's not how athletic you are, how wealthy you are. All people, men and women, young and old, are separated by the same thing. It is sin. Whether you got a short list or a big list. Right? If you're like on the naughty list, just a little bit. If you're a big time naughty list, okay, you've got sin. And so when you have sin, God says, I am holy and righteous and pure and my heavenly realm. There is no sin admitted, no admittance. It's like no shoes, no service. Any sin, no service, no admittance. Okay? And so if you even have one, just that one white lie you told when you were four about taking candy when you didn't, you know, that, that lie, that is enough to keep you out of heaven. Now that seems harsh. Oh, but he's righteous and he's holy. God is love. And God also is righteous and he is holy. And there is a reality to that when we do wrong, oh, we need him to forgive and cleanse. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, just as Billy was reading in that passage, a beautiful passage. He came and took our sin and our shame upon himself and by effect then became the head of the church. By him dying on the cross, being resurrected back to life, guess what? He's now the head of the church. The church birthed, remember, after Jesus' death and resurrection. The church did not exist before that. The church existed only after that, and when the Spirit of God came, the day of Pentecost, boom, the church is birthed. People are saved. They've been crying out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent. Repent of your sins for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and turn from your old ways to the new way. Which is a beautiful message, which means in a year of 2020 when people are very hopeless, 2021, be reminded of the fact, this can be a year of hope. But that year of hope is founded in what Jesus has already done. 
It's not in any governmental change. It's not in any financial situation for you. It's not in you being married or still single or having twins or one baby or none. That's not the hope. Those are great things. But the hope for us as the church has to be resolved to be on Christ. Because without that, everything else would disappoint you. Even the people that are loving and nice in this room. (laughs) They will disappoint you. They will probably offend you. They will probably wrong you directly and indirectly. Or as we are teaching our children, they will probably do something accidentally, but they still did it. Does not remove the fact that the deed was done. Just means you didn't mean to, which is great. But still, we are people imperfect and need of a holy God. Amen? So that is Jesus. That is the head of the church. I simply am someone who has a role in the church just as you do. Just, you know, I am not the head of Antioch. I am a man who is a, uh, a, a pastor by title and by position. But honestly, I would rather us all not have titles and positions. I think it keeps us all a little more humble. You could call me a foot or a knee or something else. Maybe that will humble us all. And just say, hey, I'm Mr. Knee. I don't know. You know, but whatever it is, the only person we're supposed to elevate, come on, you can say it. Jesus, Jesus look at that. It's like third grade again. You just raise your hand. Jesus, it's, you're going to be right. Right? The only person who's supposed to put on the throne is? The only, the only person we're supposed to glorify is? Jesus. The only person we're supposed to give our affections completely to is? Jesus. The only person we're supposed to be enamored with is? Jesus. Jesus. Not me, not you, not that movie star, not that athlete, not that politician, not that billionaire. Not even Mother Teresa. Not even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not even Jonathan Edwards, not even George Whitfield, not even John Cal, not even just go down the list of your favorite Christian hero, Billy Graham. They're all great people, but they all pale in comparison to Jesus. And lest we forget that is the dicey road we go down. Amen? So the church is the body of Christ, as we talked about last week, and Jesus is the head of the church. But today we're going to talk about the church is also described as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. I wish I had wedding bells just kind of queued up right there, but we don't. It's okay. The bride of Christ. Okay, so I'm going to unpack this for us here. It's going to be kind of quick, so stay with me here. We're going to go through some different pieces that you may feel a little lost in the journey, but remember, I'm trying to give you just a little bit of biblical undergirding for where we are, all right? So number one, the bridegroom, here's a couple of points we're going to go through, all right? So the bridegroom, or in our modern day, we would call them the groom, okay, um, has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. So when it comes about the church, it's described as the bride of Christ. Remember, the groom, the bridegroom, Jesus, has sacrificially, lovingly chosen to, uh, to choose the church as his bride. He chose us, right? We didn't first love, he first loved us. We didn't choose him. He chose us and we respond to his invitation, right? You don't just choose Jesus. You actually respond to the initiation of Jesus via the Holy Spirit prompting something in you to respond to the gospel message. Do you you understand what I'm saying? 
It's not just like a volunteer for Jesus thing. That's not, that's, it's something that's here when you're like, whoo. So it's like, remember the day that you gave your life to the Lord, if you can remember. And there was probably something stirring in you. It's like, I don't know what this is. It wasn't just a sign up to follow Jesus campaign. It was like, something is going on. I'm feeling this calling, this stirring, this conviction. Something is happening, and I want to say yes to Jesus. But the invitation is from him, and we respond. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, I love this imagery. If you've ever been to a wedding, this passage certainly has been read. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, I've had the privilege of officiating many weddings, and um, I would have to say one of my favorite parts of a wedding is the bridesmaids have come down, the little ring bear and flower girls have lost their way somewhere, you know. And then the door shut. And then I always try to nudge the groom. I'm like, hey, man, you need to scoot over. Because they're usually like here, you know. And I'm like, you need to get right here, just right here. The groom lines up, and you know what's coming through those doors. And I ask the crowd to rise, and we honor the bride walking in. At no other point in the wedding ceremony do the people rise. They rise to honor her. Not the bridesmaids, not even the groom, not the ring bearer, is to honor the bride. And those doors fling open, and the music goes, and the people are turned, and especially little girls are trying to get over here to the front to see. And she walks down the aisle, and it's like this radiating white, just boom. And it's like, I know she's not glowing, but it sure seems like it. You know, I mean, there, there may be some of those glitter makeup going on, but it's just, it's like, boom, and it's like this glory, and it's, this woman walks down the aisle, and the groom is right here, and all eyes are fixed on her, but what they all know is that she's taken, and he is ready to receive his bride. That is like the most fun part for me, because it is this raw emotion, this anticipation, they've been waiting, and here it is. And here she is, and he hasn't seen the dress. So here she comes. I love that. I love the beautiful picture. And what he's looking at is, he's looking at a woman that is spotless to him. He's looking at a woman that, that, that is cleansed, that the past, the past, like, it's not that she's perfect. That there are no perfect brides, right? Like, there are no brides that are, that are without sin, right? Like, there are no brides that have just never done wrong. He knows that. But he looks at her and on this day says, no, that's mine. The past of the past, I'm ready to receive you. This is it. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know how that groom can see that bride like that? Because he's chosen to forgive her. That's how Jesus sees us. He's chosen to forgive us, but we've got to confess to him. We've got to tell him what we've done and where we've been and our thoughts and everything else. When you come clean to Jesus, there's a cleansing. 
When you come clean to Jesus, there's a cleansing. Not when you just come to him. You've got to come clean. You've got you to lay, lay your cards out. You can't just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm ready for all the good stuff. Can I get to heaven now? Hey, can I have some blessings? Uh, hey, Jesus, it's not more like that. You actually got to come humble. You got to come ready to cough it up and say, Lord, would you forgive me? He's looking for contrite spirit, a heart of humility. Does that make sense? That is what he's looking for. And so when a bride does that to the groom before that day, all of a sudden now it's like, we're ready. This marriage party is on. And people are excited. I love that beautiful picture because that bride is spotless and holy and righteous in his eyes. Point two is this. Um, you know, there was a betrothal period in biblical times where the bride and groom were separated. And I'll unpack that a little bit more in just a little bit. And during that period of time, um, uh, uh, they were expected to be faithful to one another, although they were apart. And so if you picture the church, it's we are separated from Christ in the sense of Christ is returning, but he hasn't returned yet. So we're in this in-between phase. So 2,000 years ago, he sent it up to the right hand of the Father, and Jesus will return to earth. So in the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit that is helping us to engage, convicting us, and working through us as a believer. So when you confess your sins to Jesus and you receive him as Lord and Savior, what you're doing also is he's sending the Holy Spirit to indwell inside of you as a person. Which means now what all of a sudden happens is it's almost like the veil's lifted and you start seeing things differently. I don't know if you've had that experience, but, but you, you start to see things different. It's almost like you watch a movie you used to watch and you're like, I never saw that before. Ooh. You know? Or you're like an uncle now and you're trying to tell your nephews, hey, watch this funny movie when I was a kid. And you're watching like, oh, my gosh. T turn it off. It's like, what? Did I watch that? You know, like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's, but as a simple way, like, that's what happens. Because the Holy Spirit is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy, which means when the Holy Spirit's inside of you, he doesn't like stuff that ain't holy. He's going to let you know about it. A little flashing light's going to go off. You're going to feel sick to your stomach. You might have headaches. You might have physical reactions to unholiness. Did you know that? Like literally, if the Spirit of God is indwelling you, then think about the things that you do that are unholy. Do you think it's going to go well for you? Think you're going to feel better? <laughs> no, you're going to feel worse. You physically will probably feel worse. Emotionally will feel an effect. There is a sowing and reaping reality that does not go away. It's not just for farming. <laughs> sowing and reaping is a reality that all of us experience. What you sow, you will reap. And when you sow in good things, when you dwell upon whatever is noble and true and right and perfect, when you dwell on that, that's what you get. But when you sow into something else or feed yourself something else, that's what you get. So the Holy Spirit is holy. And so here we are in this waiting period as the church waiting for Jesus, the groom, the bridegroom to return one day. And our responsibility during this betrothal period is to be faithful. Is to be faithful to him. Just as a bride is asked once that, once that ring is put on her finger to be faithful to me. To not give yourself to another man, but to be faithful to me. Right? Like that is what the ring is. Hey, I'm committed to you now. 
We're going to plan our wedding and we're going to have that marriage day. But I need you to be faithful because I'm telling you, I'm committing to you. I'm putting this on your finger. Now I need you to be faithful. And you love how that is done is that the groom actually doesn't get a ring on the day of engagement. Because the groom in this same picture with Christ in the church, he's saying, I need you to be faithful. Yes, of course, the man needs to be faithful as well. But the picture there is that he puts the ring on and says, hey, I've chosen you. So this is yours. I've chosen you. And by the way, it's very expensive, and I took it alone. You know, just kidding, but, you know. <laughs> but, but, like, I mean, I've chosen you. I mean, I have never bought anything in my life except a car, I guess, that costs more. Literally. You know, like, the, like, like a thing. Of course, a house, you know, but that would be great to get a, a, a cheap house like that. But, um, <laughs> but, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's precious, like the investment from the groom, it's a lot. It's a big investment. It's a big throwdown. And in faith, you're saying, hey, I want you. I hope you want me back. And I'm choosing you. Now, will you wait and be faithful to me? Second Corinthians 11:2. for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now I'm going to read that again. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church, the bride, believers, in the city of Corinth, smack dad in the middle of the Greek empire and all that area. And he's writing this letter 2,000 years ago. And I want you to read it in the context of today. See if any of this applies to us. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband. Meaning, I betrothed you, church, to Jesus. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Um, you know, we are shaped by the culture around us. As much as maybe some of us don't want to believe that, it's true. The culture around us is rapidly becoming non-Christian. When I grew up in the 90s, um, we grew up in maybe a term you've heard now, which would be cultural Christianity. It was cool to wear a WWJD bracelet. It was cool to wear a cross from James Avery. It was cool to wear shirts that had all sorts of Christian slogans and marketing things. And if you're, if you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it was cool to go to church on Sundays. If you didn't go, you were uncool, at least in the southern portion of the U.S. There was a lot of cultural Christianity things that were being experienced here in the old Bible Belt that was kind of a society, if you put an ichthus fish on your business, you were probably going to get more business. You do it now, people are probably going to come at you. Do you understand me? So culturally, we have massively shifted. When I say culture, this means society. We got 300 and something million people in our country. Culturally, we've shifted to a non-Christian, non-biblical worldview culture in education, 
and the way we do medicine and the way that we do uh, um, for the university down to children, to the family reality, to everything else, it's like now increasingly becoming non-Christian. And what that means is that when it was cultural Christianity, your faith may have been reinforced by society. That's kind of slowly no longer being the case. Your faith is not being reinforced, reinforced or affirmed by society. In fact, it's being challenged. And in the past, you could have gotten away with a weak commitment to the church. In the past, you could have gotten away with the apathetic commitment to Christ. You can't anymore. This is not like a prophetic statement. <laughs> this is just reality. If you think you can coast through Christianity, those days are gone. You, you used to be able to do that in society. I'm not saying it didn't have ramifications of the Lord and all that sort of stuff. That's up for him to judge. But in society, I'll tell you right now, you can't coast. You can't coast. So anyone that wants to, wants to straddle the line to be a little in the world, a little bit, it won't work anymore. Society, and actually, I, I'll just say, I think there are positives to that. There's, there's a wheat and a chaff reality that's being separated. And um, only God knows who that is. So let me just urge as a church, please don't go around and try to be God. You have no idea what someone's heart is. Because half the time, they don't even know what their heart's saying anyways. <laughs> right? And so please don't go around and judge. That's not our place. Jesus will deal with that. That's not us. Our job is to be faithful to him presently. And our job is to reveal to others who don't know him how good he really is. That's your job. It's not to judge where they've been or what they haven't done or do or whatever, or to judge where they are. If they're sitting in this church saying, well, I, don't, I think he's in the shaft category. <laughs> but I know some of you. You're already doing that. You're thinking about people in your life group. Well, they haven't been for two weeks. Wait, we haven't been in life group. Okay, well, it's okay. You know. <laughs> right? So just be careful. Just everyone streaming, everyone here. <laughs> Uh, we're not Antioch Judgment Church. We're a community. And um, we need to understand those realities in our world. <clears throat> Therefore, if you are a believer in Christ, you are part of that bride of Christ description. But I love what he says. He says that we don't want to be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what we're going for, guys. To be faithful to him, like in the in-between, between Jesus already came once and he's coming again, we're in this in-between. We have to be faithful to him now. And, you know, if you ever read history, there are many heroes of the faith that were faithful to the point of death. And you know all they were doing? They were following in the footsteps of Jesus who is faithful to the Father, to the point of death. Even though he knew it was coming, he still surrendered his life openly. He was crucified and beaten and mocked and scorned. And I'm telling you right now, if you are a follower of Christ, you have to be faithful to him to the end and be ready for whatever comes. Your life, it may be pretty coasty. I don't know. <laughs> or it could be really... Rocky. But either way, the question is, are you 
prepared? Are you doing what you need to do at this moment to be faithful? You know, back to the weddings, I love how we um, honor the bride at weddings. You know, most weddings I go to, people aren't sitting around and be like, man, look at her dress, so ugly. <laughs> or did you see she's wearing flats under there? Or do you remember what she did in high school? Can you believe that? Oh, the nerve, getting married now. It sounds ridiculous. You're like, you'd be like, get out of here. Like, leave. You don't get any cake. You know, leave. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you don't need security at weddings because the guest party is security. It's like, sit down. We're going to honor her. You know what I mean? I'm telling you, it's like, ooh, the rise. I mean, could you imagine someone in the crowd running out to like stand up and like mock the bride? That dude would be decked and just be, and it may be a grandma to purse. Just, you know what I'm saying? You just don't do that at a wedding. You don't do it. You know? Like you honor the bride, right? But man, we do that to the church, don't we? Don't we mock the church? You, you realize you're like mocking yourself, right? Like you realize you are knifing yourself. When you say words of this and that and the other, I mean, it's driving me nuts because I'm telling you, Jesus will return one day and will be able to see deep into your heart and your soul and mind and say, you have been faithful or you have not, period. Do not blaspheme against the church. Do not curse the church. That is a warning for all of us. Because it's biblically clear, and I'm not going to dig into it deep today, but it's all over the place. He cares about his bride. Don't dishonor the church. Remember, the church has a past. The church has problems. But those, the church, are people that have confessed their sin to Jesus and have been forgiven. And they say, I want to do it better. And yes, people need to be held accountable but that is different than blasting the church. That is different than you having a poor experience with another person in the church and then now also quantifying all churches are like that or all passionate. That's, that, that is immature thinking. And when your friend says that, just say, dude, stop being immature. Grow up. So, I mean, it's like I got a bad nugget at Chick-fil-A. They're out. Can't believe it. They serve terrible chicken. I'm going to write about it. I'm going to tweet everybody about it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to stomp my feet. No Chick-fil-A. No Chick-fil-A. They serve bad nuggets. And it's like, what is, sit down. What's wrong with you? It's like, it's delicious. It's like, why well, a bad nugget? So? <laughs> it's called life, man. <laughs> you want to live in a bubble? I don't. So guess what? The church is going to serve you a bad nugget. Toss it out and eat the rest of them. Anyone ever tell you when you read a book, eat the meat and spit out the bones? There's a point to that. Not this one. You eat all of it. Every other book, okay? Okay, some of you guys, take me. Take me. He said, take the meat and spit out the bones. Can't believe that guy. No, no. This is all meat. It's all meat. 100% protein, organic. No hormones. Okay. All right, here we go. We've got to move it along. Um, man, gosh. Uh, 
Okay, here we go. Um, okay, we're just gonna we're gonna go to this. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna get here. Okay. All right. Um, I, I want to share a parable with us that I think is gonna bring all this into context. And it's Matthew 25. You got your Bibles. You can open them up. We'll have it on the screen as well. Matthew 25. Um, more or less, as you're turning there, Jesus kind of sheds light on our role and our responsibility in this church age. This is in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And he uses a beautiful illustration kind of involving this whole idea of a wedding and a marriage. So I want to read it for you, then we'll unpack it a little bit, okay? Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, some of us have read this passage before, and it may have been a bit confusing. It's also a bit sobering, but let me kind of unpack a few things for us that will help us here. First, the ten virgins, let me explain that. Um, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding in that day. There was engagement, which is a formal agreement, agreement made by the fathers of the two um, people. Secondly, there was a betrothal stage, and this was um, the, uh, the ceremony where mutual promises are made. Typically, there would be a contract put in place between the families about the details of what this marriage is going to be about. And then the third stage was the marriage. Approximately one year later, when the bridegroom came at an unexpected time for his bride. It wasn't actually planned. They didn't know what time he'd be coming. But they knew he'd be coming in an approximate time and therefore, they had to be ready for when he came to then alert the bride, the bridegroom is here. He's coming. So the bridesmaids, they call it the ten virgins, but really what that is, is the bridesmaids readying themselves. And commonly in those days, ten was kind of a normal size wedding party. So think about context. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of predominantly Jews who understand the whole culture of weddings and the whole engagement, betrothal, and marriage reality. And they've all been to weddings, and some of them are married, and they understand what he's talking about. Remember, Jesus always used language that his hearers could understand. He never tried to talk over them and to be high and mighty and smart, right? He actually was smarter than everybody. But he didn't come across arrogantly. He spoke to their level. Just a little nugget for all of us. <laughs> Speak to where the people are, to where the person is. Don't try to prove something with what you know. So Jesus spoke to them in this way. 
talking about the wedding. And when the bridegroom came, um, the bridesmaids who were attending the bride, um, they went forth to meet the bridegroom with their lamps lighted to conduct him and, and the companions to the house. And so more or less, when the bridegroom came, they were alerted, would then get their lamps out or their torches, and they would say, hey, he's coming. They would light the way for him to come meet the bride. Now, in this parable, what we need to understand is that, um, is that uh, because the engagement and betrothal stage have already been completed, so now as they're waiting for him, waiting for the bridegroom, and, and what I want to alert us to is in the Old Testament, I just learned this this week, in the Old Testament, um, uh, the bridegroom was always God, Yahweh. It was never the Messiah. So the Old Testament Jews, like those, the Israelites, okay, they were thinking, hey, whenever they heard about the bridegroom in this, in this language in the Old Testament, it was always about God, never really attributed to the Messiah. So when Jesus shares a parable to a predominantly Jewish audience about himself really being the bridegroom, this is kind of like a little mind-blowing. What? Like the Messiah is the? Hold on a second. So they were trying to get context for this, which is why we talk about Jesus being the head of the church. So here he comes, and, um, and so when Jesus shares this, it's, it's unveiling the full reality of this great marriage to come between Jesus and his bride, the groom and the church here. <clears throat> and what I love about this story is that because Jesus inserts himself as the groom, as the bridegroom, as he's sharing this parable, what it does is it says, no longer are you a bride because of your birth or ethnicity. You see, to a predominantly Jewish crowd, they were the chosen people of God. It was them. All the Gentiles, all the pagans, all the, everybody else, they're out, man. We are the people that take them in. It is us. So for Jesus to bust the doors open and say, actually, what's about to happen in a few days' time, remember this is towards the end of Matthew, in a few days' time, he was about to be crucified and resurrected and then literally would communicate to the world, to the people, guess what, anyone can come to me. Not just, it's no longer Jew or Gentile, free or slave, young or old, man or woman, anyone can come to me. That was like, whoa, what? Like anybody can come to the groom? Because that before was just only from, you had to be born into that. You know, it talks about the five, um, about the five wise and the five foolish, right? You know, notice that the, um, that, that the wise ones were prepared, but the foolish ones were not. But don't think bad and good when you read this parable. Think of um, thoughtful and uh, thoughtless. Meaning, you see, all ten went to sleep. They were actually waiting for him to come, but he hadn't come yet, so they got sleepy. And all ten fell asleep. So it's not actually bad that all ten fell asleep. That was actually okay. It's that five of them were prepared before they went to sleep, knowing that whenever he came, whenever that would be, they'd be ready. Wouldn't have to scramble. See, there's, there, there's a preparation message for us as the people of God. How are you preparing yourself every day because you never know what morning or what night he's showing up? And if you live with a preparation lifestyle, then you live with the reality of when the Bible says, hey, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Things like that. It's like, oh, it all makes sense because I'm supposed to live every day as if tomorrow is coming. That does not mean sell your house, quit your job, and 
sit in the forest and wait. You might die there, okay? What it means that you live with a prepared attitude, lifestyle, and posture. That you're ready, and you're ready to give a defense for the gospel. You're ready to give a defense for your life, for your choices, for what you do and don't do. You're not insecure. You're not scrambling in life or pulled this way and that by the world and what they say. But you're clear. Oh, I know who my Jesus is. I know what he's called me to do, which is to be faithful right now. And I'm readying myself for that day. But until that day, I've got work to do. Put my head down, hands to the plow, and let's go. I would love to be surprised in the field one day, so to speak. I'm just going. Hey, Lord. He's like, whoa, you're back. Ah, wow. Amazing. But I, I'm, I'm not going to. Is he coming? Uh, should I work now? I don't know. Just keep resting. Just wait around. I'm supposed to come. I got this prophetic word. He's coming next week. <laughs> uh, I got this. I heard that when this thing happens in our world, that's it's, it's next 24 hours. It's coming. <laughs> Remember, he said, no one knows. No one knows. The Father knows. But he ain't going to tell you that. You're not in that inner circle. <laughs> but what, what made the five ready as we get ready to close here? What, what made the five ready? Um, what made the five ready is that they had oil. See, all ten fell asleep. All ten had lamps. They actually had the proper thing to light the way but without the oil. You see, they all fell asleep, and they actually all had a vessel that could produce light. But that vessel without the oil was not going to be lit. Interesting. So what is Jesus saying? It's not only about the preparation and the readiness for the church, the people of God. It's also about you being the vessel ready to go to have the oil. And what is the oil? The oil is the Spirit of God. You see, a vessel that is empty cannot light. But a lamp, so to speak, with oil can be lit. They had extra oil. They all the same lamps, but five had the oil and five didn't. And when you go try to buy the oil at the very end, it's too late. So the oil you have to have ready now. You know, oil is often used as a description of the Holy Spirit. And without oil, nobody's ready for the return of Jesus. Actually, the Spirit of God is conditional upon you being ready. You can't be ready without him. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We said at the beginning that the church is described as the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom coming for his bride. But without the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, he does not know you. The only way the spirit of God comes to dwell in you is when you confess your sins to Jesus and surrender your life. Which is why billions of people all over the world, if Jesus returned today, would be like the five who show up to the door. And it's shut. And he says, I do not know you. It wasn't just some factual statement. That is a statement of rejection. I do not know you. I do not know you. The only way I know you is you've been washed in my blood. And the Spirit of God is in you. 
Because you see, he can see everyone who has the spirit. We can't really see that necessarily in that way. But he's got this like super x-ray kingdom vision thing that he knows the spirit of God He's dwelling in who. And he knows who's been faithful. And he knows who's ready for him. So I want us to stand this morning as we close. And, you know, I know this morning's message is a bit, a bit sobering, but that was intended. <laughs> because we need to wake up to the reality that God is calling us to do something that the world may not like. We need to wake up to the reality that we no longer live in cultural Christianity. We need to wake up to the reality that the world says it's okay to get married and get divorced, get married and get divorced. It's okay to get engaged and cheat on them. It's okay. Like, literally, the world right now is trying to unravel everything holy and good and righteous about the wedding and about the bride and the groom. Everything that's coming under attack, it is coming that because if you can, if you can, if you can distort the essence of Christ and the church, the bridegroom and the bride, the head and the body, if you can distort that, everything else unravels. So if you start with the family and say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter who gets married to who. If you start with identity, you can pick who you are, a boy or a girl. If you go down the path of well, it doesn't really matter. You can get married as many times as you want. It's just, it's not really a covenant. It's just kind of as long as you're in love, it works. If you start to unravel everything that is holy and pure and put in motion by God and is intentional by him, you start coming out that as a culture, all of a sudden people start saying, well, maybe it's not a big deal. And then maybe they start saying, well, maybe being faithful to Jesus isn't a big deal. Maybe my sin's not really a big deal. I mean, I'm, I mean isn't there a lot of grace? Isn't God a God of love? I mean, if God's so loving, shouldn't he just let us all in anyways? And then you see the train of thought, right? But I'm telling you right now, when a groom puts a ring on that finger, on that bride, he expects her to walk in her virginity. He expects her to walk narrowly and faithfully, no matter what her past is. But at that moment forward, it is now, you are mine. You're committed to me. Do not be unfaithful to me. And he has every right to call it off if she's unfaithful. Jesus is choosing, choosing you. You must be faithful. And in the moments that you are not, be quick to repent. That's why we have repentance. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any believer that's been perfect since the day they were saved. But learn this. Be quick to repent. Be quick to confess. Because just like the detachment from the body, if you're quick to reattach, you can be restored and made whole. If you're quick to repent, confess, you can be restored and made whole. But if you let it linger, weeks, months, years, that's going to be very difficult to restore that. Does that make sense? So, Lord, I want to pray. Um, yeah, just, I just get a sense. I want to pray for us, really on this idea of us being faithful and being ready. Being faithful to him in this, in the church age, and where we are right now and being ready for his return. So Lord, I just pray right now for us as a people that we would be faithful to you and just anywhere in your heart where you're saying, Lord, man, I've not been faithful. I've actually given my affections to another. You have a chance this morning just to repent. There's no shame in that. It's actually encouraged. <laughs> if, if, if you've given your affections, if you've given your loyalties, if you've given your heart or the, or the deepest places to something, anything, anyone other than him. Oh, Lord, let us repent. 
And if, if there's any place in us that we're not readying ourselves. See, the, out of the ten virgins' story, the ones who were ready, they had their lamps with the oil ready to go. That oil is the Spirit of God. Oh, let us not try to function in life on our own strength. Let us not dismiss the work of the Holy Spirit, but let us embrace it, engage it. Spirit of God, we pray that you would come in such a deeper measure into our hearts that we'd be convicted of sin on a deeper level, that our holiness would increase as we increase in our engagement with you, that you would speak more clearly in these days than you have in the past. That the believers all over this room and all over our world, they begin to hear the voice of God with clarity. The conviction of sin would be there. They wouldn't have to be told at life group. They would hit them in the morning. They would wake up and repent and say, Lord, I'm done with that. Spirit of God, lead us, convict us, guide us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we repent as a people for any place that we have distanced ourselves from you, that we have numbed ourselves to you, that we have entertained ourselves from you. And we wanna come back into alignment with you this year, we pray, that we'd come back into alignment and that we would take a deep ownership, a deep commitment, a deep resolve in our hearts to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, that we would be a faithful bride that says, I can't wait for that wedding day. It's coming, but it's not here yet. So this is the test for us. God, I pray, give us strength, give us endurance, give us a heart, give us a resolve to be a people that will not waver left or right, that will not be tempted after this or that. We will say, no, this is my God. This is my Jesus. He has given everything to me. I will give everything to him. No one else, there is no other love but him. I'm completely surrendered to him. I'm devoted to him. I will know nothing but him. So Lord, we ask that you again would rule and reign in our hearts. You would rule and reign in this church. And Spirit of God, we pray for a deep work and a deep move to begin in our church amongst us as a people, that we would be a Spirit of God people, that our oil would be ready, be filled to the brim. We'd have more to pour out, more to give away. It's not just for us, it's for them. Lord, we pray for that, Lord. Make us faithful and help us be ready, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.